I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to After Law, broadcasting from the beautiful South Berlin. Except no sandwiches. Boxing Day greetings, dear listeners. Welcome to another Achtung Millwolf, number 441, if you're counting. Um, welcome to today's show. It's another one of the um, series that we've been doing of Millwall objects, items and curios of, of historical and cultural significance, as I've defined them. I was, last show I did, I, I said that I was slightly running out of gas on some of the items, so immediately... I get emails and stuff being sent to me from um, the usual suspects. Mr. Andy Sullivan has sent me some items from his vast Millwall uh, memorabilia collection. Big thank you to Andy for continuing to send stuff in. Absolutely fascinating items. Going to keep me going for a couple of shows yet now with the stuff that Andy sent to me. But also to, um, to Dave McCann, who's emailed me. Big thank you to Dave. Dave says, um, hi, Nick, I'm, a number one, <laughs> I'm another one of the boomers that follow your podcast. Boomers of the world unite. That's those of us for the youngsters um, born in the baby boom, post-war baby boom, including myself in 1960. Um, he, Dave is a boomer that follows our podcast. And before we get in touch to, wish us all a happy Christmas. Thank you, Dave. Uh, happy Christmas back to you and all to, all to listeners. New Year 2 is looming now. Um, he's enjoying the series of old mill-related items, um, and he wants to bring to my attention that he's got a battered old rattle. This would be a wooden rattle. Um, you remember the wooden things, he says, that spin around. That's right. Um, he bought it about 30 years ago from a boot sale in Camberwell. He's no idea when it was used, as it's a bit before his time, but he thinks it could be a World War II rattle that was later painted blue and white by a supporter. It's quite heavy and really loud when you spin it. And he also goes on to mention, back in the early 70s, he had an action man in a Millwall kit. Uh, I do remember the action man footballers, Dave. I don't remember the blue one. I remember the Manchester United red one. But Dave says he had a whole collection of first division football kits for action man. And luckily, <laughs> I get the, the Leeds kit was all white, just like Millwall's at the time. It was all white. Um, you could wear a Leeds shirt, and it could be Millwall, or arguably... Real Madrid, if you were that kind of, um, you know, uh, Europeanist in your outlook, I suppose. Um, Dave got his nan to knit the action man a blue and white scarf. That's 
the original toy is long gone to the great toy box in the sky, he says, but he recently purchased bits and pieces on eBay to recreate Action Man, and now he sits on my bookshelf next to the Lions of the South. Nostalgia. Keep up the good work. Stay safe. Really appreciate that, um, Dave. Oh, it was a PS, sorry. Um, PS, I was also one of those fashion victims that wore the half-and-half half ski hats. I've no idea why, probably because my mates did. I think there was a lot of that around, Dave, to be honest with you. The... Um, the, uh, the choice of Scottish team, and, and uh, I don't know if there was any great thought process that went into any of it, but people would wear um, ski hats with Millwall on one side and Scottish sides on the other. Who knows why? It's too far gone now um, to, to really go too deeply into it, but um, there, there it is. Yeah, a huge thank you, Dave, for, for bringing his, your rattle uh, and the action man, which I think is fantastic, to the attention of the listeners of Achtung Millwall. Um, you don't see rattles around anymore, um, but I'm going to link that rattle with our next item, which I will come on to shortly. Um, but you don't see wooden rattles, and I would imagine that's because they were heavy-duty things. And if it was a wartime rattle, which I believe from memory was was um, used by air raid precautions, um, I think, did it not a signal gas attack in the First World War? <laughs> rattle. Um, if the rattling was going, it was gas. There was no gas all clear. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, they w- it would have been heavy duty because it would have been designed for, um, you know, battle conditions. So it had to have been fairly well made. And I would imagine if you tried to get one of those into a football ground now, it would be deemed an offensive weapon by the... Um, you know, the, the modern-day Stasi, the woke Stasi that run life and football generally. Um, this one been painted blue and white by a supporter, he says. So, um, and I'd imagine it would have been loud because it was meant to be heard in, in difficult conditions. I love the story about the action man, Dave. Um, as I said, I do remember there being a series of action men. These were kind of like, um, for younger listeners, I suppose I ought to explain, action men. Um, you probably know it already. It was a soldier, wasn't it? You could kit him out in various uniforms. Um, did they do an unwise German one, like a wartime German SS one or something? Am I, am I making that up? I know you could get, you know, kind of commando ones and various units of, um, of, of, of the GI and the British Army and all, all that kind of thing. Um, with weaponry, of course, to go with it, because that's what we played in the 60s, kids. We played a war. We used to run around shooting each other, and no one wanted to be the Germans. Um, that's how it was. It was all very recent in the folk memory, wasn't it, back then? Um, and I love the idea of your nan knitting action man a blue and white scarf, Dave. That's, that is wonderful, wonderful stuff. Really appreciate that email. Do send me your emails, listeners. I mean, if, if we want to continue on with this series... I need to be fed um, items and imagery, as Andy's been doing, and we'll come on to that later. Uh, and as David is doing now with the, with this rattle, um, wonderful stuff. I am going to link David's rattle with our next image, which I, I have um, possession being nine tenths of the lot. I have it on saved on my iPad. This image, listeners. It's one from 1957, and it's quite surreal as an image. It's a packed den, uh, Colbro Lane, ahead of an FA Cup tie played in February 1957. Let me just check that before I continue. My notes, yep, 19, 16th of Feb 1957, a packed den. Millwall played Birmingham City in the FA Cup, 
a game that we'd lose 4-1. It was the end of a cup run that season. We'd previously beaten Newcastle in front of 45, nearly 46,000 in the den for that game. This game here, the one that is in the photograph that I'm talking about, had an immense crowd of 42,000. Can you imagine 42,000 or 46,000 for that matter in the den, listeners? Anyone that was there, um, you know, at the Coldblow Lane will just, your mind will boggle at the idea of 40,000 people in there, but there we are. Um, the game against Newcastle, just to veer off a tangent, in the previous round was the, the famous image I've also got, just flicked across to it, the famous image where people are um, standing on the floodlights um, in the you know, and also sitting on top of the scoreboard I see and up on the uh, the Jews Hill, the old uh, dog stadium uh, behind the Elderton Road end. Um, but anyway, I'm looking um, at this image, which pre is, is looks like it's pre-match in the Millwall one Birmingham City four loss on the 16th of Feb, 1957, and it's um, like a pre-match parade, and they've got a chap dressed as, as like an early form of Zampa the Lion. Uh, in lion suit, basically, with a lady who I think represents Birmingham City, and I don't know. Um, she looks like she's got like a a town crier's style bell in her hand, with decorated in kind of um, I don't know what would you call it, like a, like an like an 18th century style garb. You know, it's got like um, whatever colour the coat is. It must be a royal blue, I reckon. It looks like a white skirt with flowers on it and, and um, kind of a plume on, on the lady's hat and a, and a false blonde wig walking along in front of a packed packed halfway line terrace wonderful picture listeners um, and so Zampa and the lady are walking along hand in hand uh, Zampa's not, it probably wasn't called Zampa back then but I'm going to use it because it gives you a picture of like quite a disturbing looking lion face actually as I'm looking at it on this costume he's got the lady's fancy umbrella the kind of thing that Marie Antoinette might have paraded around at the Palace of Versailles and behind them is a chap dressed as Charlie Chaplin with a violin and the words to keep right on to the end of the road, which I discovered in the course of doing the, the modicum of research for this show, became the Birmingham City uh, song in that 1956-57. They, they would also, also go on a cup run. They'd continue their cup run at Coldblow Lane with this win, 4-1. But he's, he's dressed as Charlie Chaplin. He's got a violin. Now, if he played that on a violin, um, I don't know that... I can't imagine that the mill crowd would have taken kindly to that. It's also got like a um, a Bob Dylan style word lyric sheets, you know, with the, the um, John is in the government, look out, Jim, the nowhere I've been. What's that song called? I can't think of the name of the song. Um, Parking meters and all that kind of thing. I can't think of the name of that song. Anyway, he throws away the lyrics. If you know what I'm talking about, God help you. Dear listener, if you actually understand that train of thought. But anyway, Charlie Chaplin is in this image with the lady um, and the lion man. The man in the lion suit is, is, has got the lyrics of keep right on to the end of the road. Um, the whole thing is very surreal. And behind them is a kid with a rattle. Hence my link with um, Dave's email. A wooden rattle that is clicking. And a top hat written upon which is written up the lions, and actually, and now I'm looking at it in the crowd. Actually, it's it's the pre-fenced-in era of football, thankfully, 
and there's another rattle I can see on the very edge of the image here, another wooden rattle. You would never get it into those into the football ground nowadays. Another thing, incidentally, whilst I'm veering all over the place on tangents, uh, rattles you don't see at football matches anymore, listeners. You also don't see uh, rosettes. This kid here, I'm just looking at him, has got a rosette pinned to his into his lapel of his jacket. And there are two kids screaming or shouting with enthusiasm with knitted blue and white bobble hats. My mum knitted me a bobble hat. I didn't want it, but she did it anyway because she would knit stuff for us when we were kids. And she knitted me a blue and white bobble hat. Um, did I ever wear it? I probably might have gone out of the house with it on and probably put it in my, in my pocket to keep her happy and placated because that's the kind of thing you have to do with your mum, isn't it? You don't want to upset her. The faces in the crowd, this is 1957 New Cross, so still um, a very industrialised area, working class area. Um, the faces in the crowd are wonderful. It's a different era. Um, and I was having this conversation yesterday, I think I'd had one too many glasses of red wine and I was starting to wax lyrical with, you know, when you get that point where you're talking a lot and other people's faces are blank with boredom. Um, and I was telling people how your life spans different eras and different times. My life, born in 1960, um, these faces and these images, although I don't know these people, um, you can tell by the look of the face, the hard-edged hard faces, the, the, the lined faces, these are working people. These are hard men doing hard jobs for whom the football was their release. And to look at these flat caps, uh, you know, the kind of overcoats, these are not a wealthy crowd, but they are our people. And I, I don't know, I started, I did that much wine, I started to get into like a bit of a mystic kind of linkage between now and then and how we're all part of this one big story. And I think that's probably the point where I needed to shut up. And I did, lo and behold, I did shut up. Um, over the back of the stadium is the outline of the, the stands of New Cross Stadium, the old Speedway dog track. Um, and all in all, it's a wonderful image. So I've linked together your email, Dave, with rattles and this particular image of um, an equivalent of Zampada Lion and whatever this lady, she must represent Birmingham in some way, and I don't know what her, um, her symbolism is. I do have a match report from this game did they do Millwall says the Sunday Mirror um, Millwall 1 Birmingham 4 angry Millwall chairman Mr Mick Purser Mick Purser stood in the sad hush of his beaten team's dressing room and snapped I think Birmingham were unnecessarily robust particularly when they were winning so easily without it uh, the journalist here is Frank McGee. He backed up his accusation by pointing to the fact that the referee, Mr K. Collinge, had spoken sharply to two of the First Division Club's players, wing-half Roy Warhurst and Johnny Watts, and had taken Warhurst's name. Um, comment from Frank McGee, the journal. Sorry, Mr Purser, even your own players don't agree with you. It does seem a bit rich for a Millwall chairman to complain at robust tactics by the opposition. Um... McGee spoke to fullback, Mill fullback Alex Jardine, Colin Rawson, Hart wing half, George Vetch, and outside right George Hasley, and the centre forward Stan Anslow. And the verdict of this group of players, of men who should know, as McGee puts it, were that. 
Birmingham were not guilty of rough play. Tough play, yes. Hard play, yes. But dirty, no. The simple truth is that these two teams played basically the same time of type of game. Fast, open, thrusting football. Only the first division team did everything with more skill, more bite and more power all round. So I think that's probably the story of um, the story of our lives. A section of the Millwall crowd tortured um, Stan, Stan Merrick? Stan Anslow. Stan, that's his own, our own crowd. Late in the match with tawdry comments. Tawdry comments, that doesn't sound like us. Such as, you won't get have your picture in the papers next week, big Ed. I think the quality of um, ribbing from the mill crowd might have been a bit different back then, dear listeners. It's, it's certainly changed over the years. So there we are. Complaints from Mickey Purser that they that Birmingham did the dirty on us. It wouldn't be their last time that they did. Um, 42,000 in the den. Gosh. There we are. So that's the link between Dave McCann's rattle and that image that I've had for some time. I've actually never known what to do with it. And I finally found um, a way to bring in the lion and the lady images as, as I've tagged it in my on my iPad. Um, and I've also got in the mention of gas attacks. There's not many of the shows where you can get, get uh, you know mention of um, brutal warfare and Millwall in one and the same show. There we are. Um, so we move along. I've got another image and this is actually, um, I've lifted this from Facebook and I, I Apologise and thank whoever put this on the the Mill History um, Facebook group. It's an image from 1910, um, a strange fixture in some ways. A game played between Clapton Orient, or Leighton Orient, but Clapton Orient then, uh, and Millwall in Paris, in the Parc des Princes in, in, in Paris, for a, a cup, a sponsored competition called the Dubonnet Cup. And this would finish... Um, like a, it was a post-season exhibition game, and the Dubonnet Cup was a, um, a, a, an attempt by the French Football Federation to spread the word in France of the of the um, of the game. So English teams would be invited over to play for the Dubonnet Cup, sponsored by uh, Dubonnet, the uh, the aperitif, um, which I was thinking the other day. I haven't had a Dubonnet in a long time. I might have to find one and buy some and then give it a try um it must still my first question is do they still make it and yes they do because Dubonnet was actually awarded a royal warrant i read by queen elizabeth ii as recently as 2021 november so they do still make it um i just haven't had it for years have you had it lately dear listeners the Dubonnet. um it's a kind of like a red wine a blend of red red a ruby cabernet muscat of alexandria uh, with herbs and spices and and sugar, so it's a sweetened version of like a fortified wine, I suppose. Favorite drink of the Queen Mother and Queen Elizabeth II, and also strangely in this company Nelson Rockefeller, who was one of the, the Rockefeller family, and also I think he was briefly um, vice president of the USA. He had a, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I shall. Nelson Rockefeller's uh, taste for alcohol was moderate, it says, but he would have an occasional glass of Dubonnet. On the rocks, I'm going to have to give it a go. I haven't had it for years. I've tasted it a long time ago. I think it was quite nice from memory. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to have to give that a try. So enough about Dubonnet. They sponsored this Dubonnet Cup. And the image that I have is of um, the late Orient captain and Sammy Frost, one of our 
um, to just well nine pre First World War players facing the camera ahead of the start of the 1910 Dubonnet Cup, an exhibition game, that Clapton Orient would actually win 3-0. Um, and that's about as much detail as I've been able to find on the that particular game. Um, there's quite a bit on the Swindon Town winning it in 1910. Uh, this is a 19... We all played in 1911, so I think I said 1910. We played them, Clapton Orient, in 1911. And then there was a final fixture, Fulham 4, QPR 1 in 1912. All the games played at the Parc des Princes in Paris. Um, the only report of any standing I found is that of Swindon beating Barnsley for the first Dubonnet Cup. Um, the Millwall won uh, all I could find in Richard Lindsay's complete record is the crowd, 6,000. And Richard says the team not traced. I can't find any uh, press report searching under Millwall or Clapton Orient or Dubonnet for that particular game. So very little detail on the Dubonnet Cup. Um, but that said, it's a great photo. It's a bit of a mystery um, fixture in the sense of, of um, what happened. But I'm going to include it on this show of curios and items of uh, interest and, uh, and, and historical significance so there we are the Dubonnet Cup 1910 1911 I keep saying 1910 1911 and finally um, leaflet printed by the Great Western Railway. The GWR, one of the great railway companies of pre-nationalised Britain. Uh, all of the railway companies were gradually merged and many, many individual railway companies, one of the biggest being the Great Western that ran out of Paddington heading westwards. Um, two, as this particular advertising handbill to Bath and to Bristol, and this advertising using the Great Western Railway to go and see the great football matches which were listed here as Bristol Rovers versus Millwall at the Rovers ground on Stapleton Road in Bristol. And the second game advertising is Bristol City versus Middlesbrough. That to be played at St John's Lane, Bedminster. Um, also some rugby, Bristol versus Bath at the county ground. I'm guessing that's the county ground that was now cricket, cricket ground. Um, and also some theatre, some theatrical. If you're interested in your theatre, you could have seen um, The Merchant of Venice with Sir Henry Irving himself. Bristol Rovers versus Millwall um, game being advertised by the ha this handbill. And it was advertising trips to, to Bath. A half-day excursion will run to Bath and Bristol. Um, one, and, one shilling and nine pence to Bath from, from uh, Devizes. Uh, Bradford-on-Avon, one shilling. Um, and to Bristol, two shillings, threepence. Turn train will leave Stapleton Road at 11.30pm, so it's a special, and finish up at Bath at midnight. Um, wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. This is this was printed in November 1902, uh, and for information respecting pleasure party and excursion arrangements and special trips in the Great Western, contact Mr C. Kislingberry, Divisional Superintendent at Temple Mead Station. 
On a side note, it's um, I listened to a show the other day, the the Rest is History podcast. Wonderful, wonderful podcast. But they were talking um, about cricket, the development of cricket in England, which obviously had its roots and origins, like all sport really, in village country life. And they made the very interesting point, or at least I, uh, the, the, these are the kinds of things that I find interesting, dear listeners, that all professional sport, from cricket through to football to, to some level rugby, but mostly the big two sports, cricket and football in this country, both the development of those sports were went hand in hand with the construction of the National Rail Network. Basically, sport would not have developed beyond the village versus village level, very localised in other words, had it not been for the development and the industrialisation of the big cities, but which went hand in hand with the building of the railways. Basically, in a nutshell, you needed to be able to get to places um, in order to stage any kind of league system. So for there to be a, a, a football league or a southern league or a county championship, if you're talking cricket, you needed your team to be able to get to the other, you know, your opponent's grounds reasonably quickly, reasonably cheaply. Um, not possible prior to the building of the railways. Back then you'd have had stagecoaches um, and yes, you would have had the internal combustion engine from the what the 1880s, 90s onwards. But that was largely the preserve of the rich and not for the common man, certainly not for football clubs to send their teams to another city or town to play an away game. So basically... The Football League, which was founded in 1880, um, 1888, Millwall Football Club, founding in 1885, and many other clubs were in and around that time. But if you compare that with the building of the National Railway Network, which would have been during the 1840s, 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, you know, through the course of the mid to late 19th century, basically the two went hand in hand. Road travel as a, a kind of... Um, you know, anything other than preserve of the rich and the wealthy, higher middle class um, sector of society didn't really arise until, I'd say, the 1950s and 60s onwards. That's when car travel gradually, gradually became something that working class people could afford to do. And certainly in terms of um, coach travel, I'd say it was predominantly the railway industry that drove the development of the Football League, and, and as, as that show uh, made the point, the, the, the Cricket uh, County Championship, Sport and Railways, I know we laugh at Charlton for being the train spotters, but Sport and Railways are inextricably linked. Um, wonderful find. I mean, I, I really take my hat off to Andy and to collectors of memor memorabilia generally because... You really would have to go looking hard to find some of this stuff, and I, I, you know, what, the idea of ferreting around in shops um, is both attractive to me, and yet I think I'd probably lack the patience to do it justice. You're interested in the results of that FA Cup tie, I know you are, dear listeners. So this is print. This leaflet was printed in November 1902, Bristol Rovers versus Mill. So that would be in the 1902-3 season. And I see that we played Bristol in the kind of qualifying round of the FA Cup that season. We have an away draw. This would be in this game, two each, um, on December the 13th, 1902. Uh, we then took them back to the, 
um, this would have been um, to, to the Isle of Dogs, nearly said the Den, the Isle of Dogs, uh, for a nil-nil draw. And then a, th a, um, a third replay uh, on a neutral venue, which was Villa Park. Played the, f the, uh, the third replay at Villa Park, which resulted in a 2-0 win for the Dockers. Hulse and Moran scoring two second-half goals there. That was finally settled on December the 22nd. 2-0 win in that season's cup run, which would eventually finish up in a, in a semi-final um, against Derby. Uh, which would be losing the uh, semi-final to Derby. So there we are, the Great Western Railway. Great English football matches. Also, if you're interested in rugby, Bristol versus Bath, as well as the two fixtures already mentioned. Huge thank you to, to Andy for sending me this stuff. If you've got anything in your possession, listeners, that you'd like me to do my, my version of research, as I'll take it as far as I'm able to, please do email me, achtungmillwall.com at gmail.com wonderful to get this stuff wonderful to be able to look further into the um, into the background behind these items and I hope give you some measure of um, information and interest into these, these uh, items from the past so there we are I hope you're enjoying your Christmas break dear listeners no Millwall this afternoon obviously so I'm going to close this show out there and we'll be back later in the week, I dare say. So until then, thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. Have a happy Christmas. Look forward to New Year. And here's for a better 2022. Until then, arrivederci Millwall. Bye for now. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 